0: This is KMTT, and this is Bek, and today is Tetzayin Shvat, it's one day after Tubishvat. Today is Tuesday, today's share will be given by myself, and it's our weekly share on major issues in medieval philosophy. Today, having discussed Hashkachap Chatit, Divine Providence, the last two weeks, Moving on to the the next topic, but it's actually the same topic: the application of the topic of hashgachah pratit, the most crucial application. The problem of evil, the existence of evil in the world, and what that says about hashgachah pratit, what that says about God's role in the world. The problem of evil is one of the most central problems in any philosophy of religion, and it can be treated in one of two ways. It can be treated as a problem to which I seek a solution, meaning somehow get out of the problem, or it can be used, as we will eventually see, as the key to a re-understanding of Hashkakha itself, not merely a problem to be eliminated, but in fact an opportunity to redefine and understand for myself in a far deeper and more sophisticated manner the basic relationship of God. To, to the world specifically to people, how he operates, why he operates not merely an answer but a understanding okay what is what is the problem of evil? It's important for us to define it logically because that will help us understand what possible solutions there can be and then see which solutions are appropriate perhaps from a Jewish point of view and then we'll see what solutions have been given. The problem of evil is a logical problem. It shows that there's something wrong, there's a contradiction in the basic assumptions that theists, that monotheists make about God and the world. There are three theological statements which are made by theists, the combination of which stand in contradiction to a basic empirical fact about the world. The three theological statements are, one, that God is all-knowing, omniscient, two, that God is all-powerful, omnipotent, and three, that God is good. If God knows everything, and God can do anything, and God is good, then there should not be any evil in the world. But there is evil in the world. And therefore, one of those assumptions is incorrect. There is a hidden assumption in the third theological statement, that God is good, in order for us to reach the conclusion that there should not be any evil in the world. And that is an an assumption or a definition of what it means to be good. The assumption states that if someone is good, he will do all in his power to eliminate evil. Once you make that assumption, then if God is good, he will do all in his power to eliminate evil, but God is all-powerful. And therefore, there can't possibly be any evil left, because... God is doing everything in His infinite power to eliminate evil, there can't possibly be an evil. But, an empirical statement, there is evil. We see that there is evil. And therefore, there is a problem here. In in its more extreme forms, the problem of evil could be used as a proof that God does not exist. At least God as you understand Him, as God as theists understand Him. Or it could be used to at least undermine one of the theological assumptions that have been made. What would a solution to the problem of evil be? So logically you'll have to attack or modify one of those assumptions, one of those theological uh, statements. For instance, we, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the possibility that one can say that God is not all-powerful. John Stuart Mill specifically, and not, not a Jewish philosopher John Stuart Mill used the teleological proof of God that we discussed finding God in the design of the world, to prove that God, or somebody, who we will call God, exists, who is capable of designing and maintaining this immensely complicated world that we know. Such a individual is way beyond anything that we can imagine. and John no thought it would be appropriate to call him God. But he, in any event, is no greater than he who could design and maintain this world which is indeed is tremendous and fantastic, very, very smart, very, very capable, but not infinitely capable. So if occasionally there's an earthquake, it doesn't happen every day, but occasionally there's a tsunami. If other things break out, pestilence, disease, etc., God is still much, much greater than anybody we know, and Millis feels comfortable with calling he who is 7 billion times more capable than you and nine trillion times more powerful than you calling him God. But traditional theism does not allow that to be the definition of God's power. God is infinitely powerful and 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 infinitely good and infinitely sagacious, infinitely uh, knowing of what's going on in the world. And I think the reason we discussed this when we discussed the Bambam, one of the reasons for that is because someone who is relative to us ten times, a million times greater than us should not be worshipped. Just as I don't worship a powerful king, even though he's three times more powerful than me, you should now worship a powerful king of kings, who is a million times more powerful than me. God is infinitely greater. He's in a different order of being, and therefore the reverence or worship to which uh, we with which we address him is is appropriate. And even in the Middle Ages, once the Greek notion of infinity had been used to express the the biblical the biblical notions that we find, it was just assumed, Jews, Christians and Muslims alike, that uh, God is all-powerful. He can do anything which can be done. Interestingly enough, the Rambam, among other things, this is not the Rambam's full position, but the Rambam, among other things, does use a, a version of that of that attack. He uh, addresses the statement that God is all-powerful. And the Rambam says, all-powerful, infinitely powerful, means that God can do anything that can be done. But things that cannot be done, that are logically impossible, God cannot do either. This is a point that the Rambam makes in a number of places. It was generally accepted, universally accepted, I think in the Middle Ages. Something which is impossible to be done, cannot be done, and cannot be done by God either. That is not a diminution in God's power because He can do anything, assuming that it makes sense, the thing that you're talking about. The... uh, The example I think many people have heard in third grade at some point is can God make a stone so heavy that God cannot pick it up? A a better example simply pointing out what the logical problem with ascribing to God the ability to do the impossible would be can God make a triangle with four sides? It's impossible by definition. A triangle has three sides. That's what the word means. And therefore a triangle with four sides is a logical impossibility. What does that have to do with the problem of evil? The Rambam claims that the world, which means a material world, forms, pure ideas expressed in matter, can't possibly be perfect. Because matter, by definition, by logical necessity, will always accept the form imperfectly. In other words, a circle is perfectly round, but nothing that's material can be perfectly round. And therefore, a mountain has the form, among other things, of stability. But a material mountain, has there has to be a floor there, and therefore it logically will fall down. This is not to explain the Mamam's whole opinion, whole approach to the problem of evil, but he does mention this, that there will be a logical impossibility for even God to create a material world that would perfectly reflect the design that God wants it to reflect. So this least in the natural world. That could explain why occasionally, not often, there, there could be earthquakes or tsunamis, etc. Although, the moment would still have to face the question as to when the material failed, when matter failed, why doesn't God step in and, and somehow fix it? Because he should throw the power to do so. I merely mention this as an example of how you take the theological statements we made, you try to examine any one of them, and if you can finagle it in some way, you put you could have a, a solution. Limiting God's power is either not acceptable to Jews or doesn't actually explain explain all the facts. There are clearly things which could have gone one way or the other and they go badly. People die young, children die young, birth defects, etc. And, and God is responsible. It's within His power to eliminate these things and He doesn't do so. Another possibility, which would not be popular with with Jewish philosophers or with uh, Western theists in general, would be to to limit God's knowledge. I only threw that in because the fact that God is omniscient is a logical necessity to define the problem of evil. But it's not not really a a target that could be attacked. It wasn't that important a target. But if God doesn't know what's going on in the world, as in fact Aristotle did not think he knows, then even if he was all-powerful, but not knowing of the evil... He wouldn't be morally required to eliminate it. The Vabag, for reasons we're not going to go into, did in fact think that God does not have knowledge of particulars, does not know of particular facts but only of generalities, and therefore is not in fact knowledgeable about the existence of evil. The still has to explain why God is responsible for a world in which evil is possible. That is somewhat easier to answer. I mentioned that again as a possibility. If you define the problem as I've defined it, then attacking the statement that God is all-knowing or in some way modifying it might provide, might provide an out. There is another possibility, and that's to, defi- that's to attack the fact, the pragmatic and empirical fact that I mentioned, that there exists evil. One can claim there is no evil. That would seem to go in the face of common sense. But there are philosophies, not Jewish philosophies, which don't mind going in uh, in the face of common sense. One can say that evil is an illusion. Sounds a little Eastern. It is Eastern. It's Indian. Jews have never said that. Why haven't Jews ever raised that possible approach? Well, one thing you might say because they have a certain healthy psychology about them. But I think the second reason is because of the Torah. One of the results of arguing e- evil out of existence will be that we should be apathetic in the face of what other people think is evil, because it's not really evil. But the whole Torah is based on the fact that there is evil in the world, and you're supposed to fix it. If someone is sick, you don't say, sickness isn't bad. You go and you run and you get a doctor. If someone's drowning in the lake, you don't say, death is not bad. You have to jump in and take him out. If you haven't jumped and take him out, you are liable for his death. Lota ta'amod al-dam re'echa. Etc., etc., etc. The whole Torah is based on giving the responsibility of the world to man and saying there are good things and bad things, do the good things and avoid the bad things and eliminate the bad things and attack the bad things. You have to eliminate evil from your midst. Uh, The belief that everything is good, if God is good, then everything He's done is good, which would seem to indicate a very high degree of dependence and belief, perfect faith in God everything in the world is good because God has made it, leads definitely psychologically, and I think even logically, to what's called pacifism. A, a pacific approach to the world, meaning we don't intervene, we don't meddle, we don't attack the world. Pacifism as a theology is not merely you don't have wars with weapons, but also you don't combat anything because everything is God's will and therefore must be good. So you don't go to doctors. There are Christian sects which don't call in doctors. But that's never been a, a, a Jewish approach. Even the opinion expressed by the Ramban, which we discussed at a much later time, that said you shouldn't go to doctors, he said, Well, you should go to you should go to God, you should you should pray, you should go to a prophet. He it has to do more with the nature of of physical nature and God's will, but not with a anything less than negative approach to disease. Disease is bad, it's evil. And therefore, you have to eliminate it. If you have to eliminate, then you're entitled to ask the question, why doesn't God eliminate it? So th- this approach, which is quite popular in certain areas in the world, but it's not, it's not a possible approach. It's not a possible approach for Jews and never has been in Jewish in Jewish philosophy. There is a variant of this, last, of this last opinion, which I'd like to mention. It's not actually a logical answer to the problem of evil, but it's sometimes raised to, to mitigate, to, to make the problem less, less fierce. And that's to say, well, we have to evaluate evils in a proper scale. So the evils you're talking about, like disease and earthquake and tsunamis and, and uh, all sorts of miseries, all belong to the physical world. But there are other goods in the world. There are spiritual goods, closeness to God, feeling God in your life, eventually being in olam haba, in the world to come. And those goods are far greater, the scale of spiritual good, is far greater than our normal scale of physical good. And therefore I say that even though there are people who are miserable, tzaddik virala, a righteous person who is suffering, but by, by by definition being a righteous person he's also filled with great spiritual benefits, perhaps even spiritual joy, spiritual pleasure, which outweigh tremendously the the physical suffering which which has afflicted him. I say saying, that, that's not actually an answer to the problem of evil, because you still have to explain why there is physical suffering. In other words, if this tzaddik, who has tremendous tremendous joy and, and, and happiness in his spiritual life, if he also had a slightly better physical life, he'd be even happier. And therefore, you, you can't logically claim that, oh, it's true that God sometimes reflects the righteous, but it's okay, because it's only small. It's only small change because even small change, even if this was true, has to be answered. I also think, for the same point I made before, that as Jews, as halachic Jews, we, we we can't belittle the importance of of physical of physical problems. Again, you have the same result. You see a righteous person suffering and saying, oh, not so bad. Okay, so he's sick and he's covered with boils and he, and he has great suffering and pain and his children are dying and the world is collapsing about him. But, but, but you know, he's practicing Al-Mahaba, so who cares? If who cares, you're going to wind up not doing anything about it. The, the Torah says, suffering is terrible. It constantly emphasizes that suffering is terrible in order to get you to do something about it. Nonetheless, the point might be well taken. Uh, there are Jewish philosophers I we'll mention of Chasek Veskas, uh, later on, who, among other things, makes this point. You do need a proper scale, and it's difficult for us in this world to have a proper scale. But you do need a proper scale of suffering and, and happiness. And one has to take spiritual suffering and spiritual happiness into account, and also to understand the different measure by which, it's, by which it is measured. But that's not an attack that alone, I think, will be taken by any Jewish philosopher. It has been taken sometimes by, by non-Jewish uh, I don't know, philosophers, non-Jewish theologians, or non-Jewish cultures. Uh, there were periods, for instance, where Christianity as a civilization, and I think the Church as well, uh, pushed that point to the forefront. So, for instance, when uh, the Spanish very, very Catholic kingdom basically enslaved the Indian population of South America and sent the inhabitants of Peru to the gold mines, but also sent them priests. The missionaries were hand-in-hand with the conquistadores and sent the missionaries to convert the natives. There were times when quite explicitly, quite explicitly, the argument was made, okay, it could be that it's not the greatest life in the world to be a slave in the Peruvian gold mines, beaten, ravaged by disease and dying young. But, but, but still remember that w- we've saved their souls because they were pagan uh, uh, worshippers beforehand who sacrificed their children and ate each other's entrails. And now they have achieved true happiness by getting to know God. If I sound slightly cynical, I suspect that at times, at least for the Spanish kings, that might have been cynical. Or maybe they really believed it. And perhaps even the priests, who were in the forefront of the missionaries working hand-in-hand with incredible cruelty, might have also believed it. And and it, it does indicate the danger of belittling in one way or another. Just as one should not say that evil doesn't exist, you have to be careful when you say that evil might exist, but it's not that bad. It allows you again this is not a logical argument but psychologically culturally it allows you to to get away with a lot of things and the history of of christian kingdoms kingdoms that were very much not merely where the kings were christian but they considered themselves christians the the spanish kingdom defined itself as being in the service of god and didn't see a problem in engaging in incredible cruelty while accompanying it with a, a spiritual message which they sometimes argued overcame and uh, justified the other things which they were doing. Okay, so what are the options that, uh, that that we do have how to tackle this very difficult problem? First thing I want to say is that it's a very difficult problem. The problem of evil was raised by Yumiyao Hanavi as a problem, not as an answer was a prophet. But all he could say in his prophecy was to God, Lama derech Why do the evil prosper? That's the parallel to the question, why do the righteous suffer? He said, I'm go- I believe in God, but I'm going to argue with God, because I don't understand this point, and I think it needs to be argued. And he doesn't get an answer. The book of Eov is dedicated to this problem. And it's not easy to find the answer in EOV. Anyone who discusses the problem of EOV will try to put his theory into EOV, but you read EOV and tell me if you figured out the answer. It's buried there, it's discussed at length, many, many chapters. It's hard to say that the book of EOV simply presents a simple solution to the problem. Thirdly, anything that we're going to say in our theological, philosophical discussion is not the same as applying oneself to a, real, to a real case. This is a very important point. We're, we're discussing a philosophical justification. Not that it's incorrect, or when we get around to it. Not that it's necessarily incorrect. But there is always a gulf between my suggesting a theory and when suffering takes place to yourself or to someone near you and you have to speak to them, then the theory is somewhat pale. It doesn't mean the theories are wrong. The theories, I think, can provide a basis for finding within oneself the ability to, 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 to face the personal, existential problem that evil uh, creates for those who suffer because of it. But they don't. The, the theories themselves are not the existential solution; they're the theoretical solution. So, anything I say now, which to someone who has suffered, will might sound at times to be trite. Um, It's okay, it's meant to be trite, but it does provide, I think, my own personal belief in the value of theology, it provides a basis for which someone can, through hard work, and through great faith and belief, uh, help to overcome his own problem. No given individual case will be be explained. There is always the question of the unknown, why God chose. We're suggesting reasons why God could be responsible for this and this evil, but I don't ever know how to explain why God did X, Y, and Z. The theory should be able to explain why God could do anything, which we see happening in the world. But nonetheless, any given case, the answer always comes down to, as Yumi Yao basically said, I don't know the answer, or the way of salvation can explain to you, <laughs> we don't know the answer, but you just have to have trust and faith in God. Now we can start to discuss the possible answers. We're not going to get to... Uh, we're to this will take more than one week. Okay? Today we we'll just discuss the beginning of, of the answer. The first step that everyone thinks of, because it's found all over the Torah, it's, it's essential to the Torah's attitude, is that the justification for all suffering in the world is sin. Of course, the question understood that. The question was, I think there's a righteous person any suffering. If it was evildoers who were suffering, we would not have asked the question. Even that stage is not that obvious. The Balbanque, for instance, thought it was a problem why evil people suffer. Because where does the suffering come from? The suffering is evil, and if evil is evil, it can't come from God. That's a metaphysical question. It's not a moral question. It's not why God makes the evildoers suffer, because I know the answer, the answer is justice. But but where does suffering come from? Where does disease come from? So when I could deal in, in, in metaphysics is most... Jewish philosophers didn't think that the suffering of the evil, of evil people, was a problem. But we know that there are righteous who suffer, the innocent who suffer. So the first step would be to begin to think well, maybe it's not true. Maybe all the suffering that I see is somehow connected to sin. One very simple first step you think he's righteous, he's really not. Who knows what goes on in the hearts of the people about us? That's a perfectly good answer. It logically solves the problem. The question is whether you're willing to say it. Every single person who is suffering, more than myself, for instance, I will say is a, a greater evil, is a, is, a, is a less righteous person than myself. It will lead to a great deal of complacency in the parts of those who are not suffering, and, and it, it's morally unjustifiable. So no one will say that. But the Raman, for instance, will say that, no, no, I will say that. I just have a much more sophisticated way of measuring evil and measuring righteousness. The Ramban lays down as a principle, before he even begins to discuss how to deal with the problem of evil, his principle is, avon. All suffering is caused by sin. The Raman is not willing to... To consider the possibility that there is suffering which is not connected to sin. I'm using the word not connected because what Ramban is going to do is he's going to stretch the connection, not merely to cover cases of crime and punishment, but nonetheless, all may not be punishment, but all suffering is a result of sin. How does the Ramban do this? He does this in a number of steps. In the end, he says, I might not have covered all the cases, but I think this is the right correction. I'll do this quickly. What are the steps of Rabban does? You probably have heard of these things in one context or another. Rabban puts them all together in a book he wrote about the problem of evil, a chapter in Rabban's sefer called Torah Adam, which is the laws of mourning and death. And the last section of that is Shah HaGmol to explain reward and punishment. And there he discusses this problem. Rabban's first step. He says, remember, there's this world and the next world. There's no person who's a perfect tzaddik. So the people we call tzaddik and the people we call righteous have one or two minor minor sins and a lot, a lot of mitzvot for which they they deserve reward. God has an interest that in the next world to only give them the reward. And therefore, in this world, He will collect, He will inflict the punishment which will redeem them from those few sins they have. You who sight is limited, you only see this world, you see them suffering. But if you saw the whole picture, this world and the next world, then you would not think that there is an exception to the rule of Ein yisurin below Avon. It would fit into the picture of reward and punishment. Of course you say, but I can, it's true I can't measure this person's sins. Who knows what sins he's done, and I don't know what even the appropriate punishment would be. But I can compare to somebody else. He is definitely more righteous than his neighbor, and his neighbor, who is evil, is not suffering. The man says, well, the opposite principle applies to the evildoers. God has an interest in not having to give them any reward in the next world. And therefore, he gives them all the reward for their one or two good deeds in this world, saving their punishment for the next world. Another thing, the man says, is that there's almost an opposite. It's paradoxical. Almost an opposite principle at play here. This world is a scene of prior, early reward and punishment for the part that's less important. So for tzaddikim, for the righteous, God gives them all the punishment which they deserve in the short period of time called this world so that there can be only reward, only bliss, only spiritual beautitude in the next world. And those who are basically no good, but even they have some good deeds, so God pays them off, so to speak, in this world so he's able to give them unmitigated punishment in the next. I don't mean to be cynical, but you can almost get the impression from the Ramban that the normal state of affairs should be Tzadik V'Alo and Rashabatovlo. Betovlo. The Tzadikim should suffer and the Rasha'im should prosper. Then we'll ask a larger question, why are there any Tzadikim who don't, who don't suffer? Just look at Ramban's first step. Words, he basically says, Stretch your your vision and it's not merely look in this world and next world, but understand that there is a principle at work that says give off the side, the the, the side dish, so to speak, which is punishment for the righteous and reward for the for the evildoers, pay that off in this world so that the next world can express the true truth about this person's personality. But then the Rabbi admits that doesn't really explain everything. So he goes to another principle. He says, well, there's something called shogeg. There is unintended crimes, sins that people have done. The person's really a tzaddik. He's really righteous. He didn't mean to do anything. But everybody has slip-ups. And so perhaps because he wasn't careful or he didn't check in advance, he didn't mean to do what he did at all. He was shogeg. It was an unintended sin on his part. The man says, it could be he doesn't deserve punishment. But sin is real. Sin contaminates the soul. And the cleansing of the soul can in fact be painful. And therefore God in His mercy, God in order to bring your soul to its good, again in the next world, will will we'll cleanse it, among other things through suffering, in this world. So here we've done is we're saying there is no suffering without sin, but sin isn't only uh, deliberate, premeditated sin. There are all kinds of sins, some which you may even be aware of, which are somehow connected to you. And they also require atonement or cleansing. Cleansing is a better word than atonement, because it's not that you're guilty and therefore you must suffer, but you're dirty and therefore you must be cleansed. The man has another stage which raises interesting philosophical questions. We're not going to talk about those questions, Rav was a Kabbalist, and he says, "If you still have a problem, then there is a secret answer. The secret answer is reincarnation, which, for our purposes, means you are also carrying sins from a previous from a previous existence. Herman Man doesn't mean that you're guilty. You're not. You're, 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 you're a new personality. Raman Man didn't think that we're reborn as we are. That's a misinterpretation of Man's reincarnation. But again, the soul is carrying the stains, the the burden." Of everything that it's gone through. And therefore it has to be cleansed. And therefore, to our perspective, we don't see, just as we don't see beyond the death, or Lamaba, we don't see before birth. When I can talk about reincarnation today, the point is Ramban believes that he can explain all the evil in the world by widening the perspective of sin, to include unintended sin and pre-birth sin and, and even even the thought arose in your head and defining punishment, not as punishment, but as, as reaction, as cleansing, and everything can be seen in that way. And then the man says, you know, you might still have a problem, believe in God. In other words, what's the problem? There were innocent children, The people who just couldn't manage to accumulate any sin. Of course, reincarnation would seem to explain almost everything, but the man says, m- maybe it doesn't work out for you. Okay, you have to believe in God. Anyhow, trust God. The, this is the right approach. So what the Rebaid has done is, he hasn't said that evil doesn't exist. He said that it's not true the fourth, the, the three and a half, the assumption of God is good. It's not true that a good being has to eliminate evil. Because a good being, we all agree, does not have to eliminate punishment. He doesn't have to eliminate the evil that's in response to sin. And then in the a situation whereby the good God is responsible for a great deal of suffering because there's a great deal of sin in one form or another out there in the world which has to be taken care of. We're going to proceed next week to go in a different direction from the Ramban. The Ramban is basically saying there is no unjustified evil, unjustified suffering, meaning unjustified by sin. Next week we will discuss the approach of Hastei Kreskas, the author of the Or Hashem, who literally seizes the bull by its horns and says, "Yes, there is evil that is not justified by prior sin, and it's done by an infinitely good good being." So, stopping now, sort of in the middle of our discussion, I presented the Raman really on, on the on the edge of uh, the edge of a stick. There's, the Raman is much more complicated than I presented, but I think the point. My point was to reflect. On the Ramban's approach, you might say it's a traditional approach, but traditional in in a non-traditional definition. Punishment, suffering, evil in the world, is a response to man's sin. Man sins because he has freedom of will. Allows him to sin, and God, and God responds. You've been listening to the weekly share in Parliaments of Jewish Philosophy. For today's Halakha Yomit, going back to Kriyat Shema, you may have heard people, it's not a common minute, you may have heard people read Kriyat Shema the way that one reads the Torah, with Trump. It's more common among Sfaradic uh, congregations, relatively rare among Ashkenazi congregations, but there are people who do it. It goes back to a statement of a single Rishon. Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, quoted in the Talmudet Yonah, in the second parak of Brachot, states sort of offhandedly that Kriyat shema should be read bit ta'amim. He applies this as an explanation for a statement of the Gemara in Psachim, but the Gemara of Psachim doesn't actually say that. The Gemara says... Uh, you were Masik in the wrong way. The people of Yericho would read the Torah without being Masik And Rebbeinu says that means that they didn't read it b'ta'amim. This statement the of Rebbeinu Yonah is quoted by the Torah Lehalacha. The Torah says you should read Kriyat HaTorah b'ta'amim. The Beit Yosef speculates that perhaps all Rebbeinu Yonah meant was you should read the Torah the way that, that the Ta'amim imply that we should read it. In other words, you should read it syntactically correct. Remember, that in the Torah itself, even the ends of sentences aren't marked. How do we know where a sentence, where a Pasuk ends? Because, yesh Ta'amim Mikra. The Torah says, Self-Pasuk. So Rebbein says, maybe all that's, uh, uh, the Beit Yosef says, maybe all that's what Rebbein Yonah meant. You have to read Kriyat Shema in a way that makes sense, that 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 it's, it's 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 syntactically correct. In other words, you pause at the end of a sentence. You yeah. you, you you divide the sentence up. Also, in a parallel manner to Tameyamikra, but it doesn't really mean Tameyamikra. The Rama in the in the Moshe on on the tour says, well, you know, the, our custom is not to do it. He says, but you should try. He more or less accepts the Beit Yosef. He says, We don't hold like Rabbeinu Yana, the minag of the kilot that I know they don't no no one reads that way. But it is important to 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 pronounce the sentence in a meaningful manner. And so that you should do in any event. You know, may, make sure you understand what you're saying and you pause in the right places and you raise your voice and you inflect in a manner that indicates as one, one speaks, you, 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 you have commas and and, and, and and periods in the right in the right place. And that's that's what actually the' in the It's interesting because the Beit Yosef was the one who really questioned the Beinu Yonah But the Beit Yosef, at the end in the Shulchan Aruch, quotes the halacha: one should read Kriyat Shema bita'amim. And the Rama says, no, you don't have to. But the medaktakim machmirim, those who are very careful, make a make an effort. Based on what he says in the Moshe, he means that you should make an effort to read it to read it to read it correctly. There is an alternative explanation to a Beinu Yonah and that is not what the Beit Yosef says. Not that one should read in a semantical manner, or even that Ben Yonah said you should read B'ta'amim because Tamim will lead you to read in a semantical, meaningful manner. But it could be that Ben Yonah really thought you should read B'ta'amim Mikvah. the reason is very simple. Because Kriyat is a mitzvah to read Psukim. And Ben Yonah might have thought that reading Psukim, just like you have to read the letters, and you have to read the vowels which aren't written, but you have to pronounce the right vowels. You can't say ve'i hafta, you have to say ve'ah hafta. That's not in the letter, that's in the Torah. But we know that that underneath that aleph, or associated with that aleph, is, is a certain vowel. Rebbe might think that the ta'amim, which the Gemara says come from Anshayi Knesset they're part of the Torah as it's given. So proper reading is proper reading tamim. It's not to create a semantically a meaningful sentence, but it's there because it's part of the law that says read with the correct pronunciation. Also means read with the correct tone. If a has said that, then Ofer and most rishonim don't agree because no one else mentions it. An argument against it would be that you're not re- actually reading the Torah, when you read Kriyat Shema, because you're not reading from a Torah, you're reading from a Sira, which means that Alpidin, you're reading by heart. But I'm not so sure that that's really an argument, because it would appear from the Gemara that it's, it's possible to read the Torah by heart, you're just not Yeltsin. It's not the way that you're allowed to read, but reading is, is actually a misnomer here. The word Kara doesn't mean to read, it means to recite. So the Gemara says that, you know, you can read by heart, or you can read Mitoch from the text, you're supposed to read from the text. Migilat Esther, for instance, you're allowed to read a little bit by heart. So I think the fact that we're not reading from a sefer Torah, which means because that's not the din of kriyat Torah uh, b'tzibur that's done, you know, with aliyot that's done on, on Mondays and Thursdays, but you're still reading psukim from the Torah, and it's possible. that Bayanov thought that proper reading is b'ta'amim? Again, the Beit Yosef himself says it's not necessary, even when he possibly says that you should do it. The Rama says the meaning is not to do it. But both of them agree two things. One is, it is important to read correctly, meaning to read in a meaningful manner, which requires you to understand, and also to, to pronounce the words in such a way that it's not enough to understand in your heart. You have to actually say in a way that makes sense. Sometimes we get so caught up in a sing-song, a different kind of tune, not the tune of Kriyat but a tune of our own, that I, 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 you sometimes hear people you know reading it in a manner which actually makes no sense. So that's one, it's really important. Two, the Ramah, in any event, did say that, Hamadak Yachmiru, It would be a good thing to do this. The Ramah, the Dr. Moshe says, though, that you know it's a problem. He was not used to it. If he tries to be b'tamim, it might affect his kavanah. And kavanah is more important than tamim. Having the proper intention when one reads is much more important than a, 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 a dikduk. Making sure that you say a, a tipcha and a tnahta or a kef katan in the right place—it's like a catch twenty-two. Since we don't do it, so you're trying to do it, be difficult and will affect your and will affect your kavanah. He who gets used to gets used to doing it, so it won't uh, it won't hurt his kavanah. I think, in fact, it will aid his kavanah because again, he's reading the pasuk in a manner which is uh, which makes sense. The, the tamim are not by accident; they, they reflect the proper inflection, the proper semantic, uh, or rather syntactic in, uh, 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 understanding of the, of, of the Pasuk. But Allah Ma'isa, that's what Ulma says, since most of us are not used to doing it, it's difficult to start doing it, especially at a, at a, at a relatively advanced age, and therefore Allah Ha'la you don't have to do it. If you can, it's a good thing, and that's why, basically, when he today ensures one or two people who have trained themselves to do it well, uh, are pira on this, most people, including Banim, most people who are normally amak on many things, i not necessarily mock on that. Uh, it's a halacha which exists, quoted in the Torah, and is weakened by the Beit Yosef, and more or less denied, not in theory, but in practice, by the by the Ramah. That's uh, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the Wednesday share of Rabin Yamin Tavoli, the weekly mitzvah for Pashat Yitro. Until then, this is Ezra Bek in Gush Etzion, Kol this has been KMTT. Ki mitzion u'dvar Hashem mirushalayim.